Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The situation is stabilizing and the U.S. banking system remains sound. Well, if Janet Yellen says it remains sound, I guess I got nothing to worry about. Not everything's fine. Everything's fine. Janet Yellen told us that all is good. There's nothing to concern ourselves with. Just relax, people. That's all you have to do. Your money's safe. And when I say your money, I mean the money of donors to the Democratic Party's money is safe. It's it's just, you're worrying about nothing. You're worrying about absolutely nothing. So we're going to... We're going to privatize the gains and, and socialize the losses. I mean, that's what we've always done. Missed it by that much. Ah, oh, you're worried about nothing, kid. Nothing, I says. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669, 833-GOT-TONY. Feel free to call in my conversation with Dr. Matt Will. We went through a lot the Economist and I, making sure everybody understands what exactly we are dealing with and how exactly intense this all is. And we got into whether or not the Federal Reserve, how they're going to go about doing things. Are they going to raise interest rates? Even though they're being told you raise interest rates, more banks might have issues because they put their money into bonds and the bonds are have less value if the rates go up. I mean, that's just, that's an interesting kind of place to be. You mean, if I raise rates, I destroy the banking industry, which I'm told, according to Janet Yellen, is just fine. But if I don't raise rates, then inflation stays the same. What do you say, Janet Yellen, White House, uh, I shouldn't say White House, but United States Treasury Secretary? Well, I consider it utterly essential for Congress to act to raise or suspend the debt limit. Um... I really worry about waiting until the last minute to do it. What we saw in previous debt limit impasses, and I'm thinking especially of uh, 2011 when um, it it took until the last minute to be resolved. Um, The government's credit rating was downgraded, and that's the first time that's happened in the history of our nation. That's something, this kind of brinksmanship with the debt limit, I think really imposes substantial harm. It raised the cost to the United States of borrowing, and in in turn, the short-term borrowing costs of um, millions of consumers and small business. Maybe you should spend less. Spend less, you borrow less. That's That's the answer, right? I mean, that's how rational people do it. You either have money in the bank or you don't have money in the bank, and therefore you uh, have money to spend or you don't have money to spend. Never once in Janet Yellen's conversation is it, you know what, we should spend less. They never get there. They never approach that that moment. You know, there's, there's uh, something called Godwin's Law. Have you ever heard of Godwin's Law? Uh, it is uh, a... Um, law about uh, the idea of conversations on the internet. 
Um, and it's Godwin's Law of Nazi Analogies. And it states that the longer a conversation online grows, the probability of a comparison to Nazis or Hitler approaches one. You got to admit, that's, that's genius. That is, that, is, that is absolutely true. A conversation approaching, hey, maybe we should spend less, never, ever, ever, ever approaches one. These people never get close to approaching one. They never get close to saying, hey, we should do something about the spending. Never once does Janet Yellen turn to her people and say, what do you think of less spending? No, 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 less, less, hello? Hello? Wait a minute. Wasn't everyone just here just a second ago? All I said was less spending. Janet Yellen needs to walk into a room and say, I think we need to spend less. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. I I think she needs to walk in uh, to the people uh, there who got bailed out of Silicon Valley Bank and say, we need to spend less. It's not like they're going to listen to her either. Treasure bath. I'm going to have a treasure bath. Treasure bath. Treasure bath. <laughs> that's, that's what they're doing right now. With uh, uh, quite possibly your money. I know some people don't want to call it a bailout, but I, 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 I did. So I'm going to get into this with Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. But there are some other things going on. There was a story out of CNBC regarding TikTok, where the CEO is appealing to users of the app. Of course, the conversation is whether TikTok should be allowed in the United States. No, no, it should not be allowed in the United States. And you should not have it on any phone, anywhere, at any time. TikTok is controlled by the communist Chinese. There is no debate about this. You can't trust the communist Chinese. Ew, David. That is correct. And therefore, not only can you not allow it on a government phone, can't really have it in the United States. Companies got to be sold, taken, and no connection to China. One of the things that the CEO has offered is that we'll take all the data and we'll put it on Oracle servers. There. You now have control of all the data. That's not enough. Because that would involve having trust, having faith in China, and no one should do that. So the CEO, who I believe I pronounce his name, Xiaoji Chu, that's how I believe I pronounce his name, and I hope I got that accurate, went directly to users because there's going to be a hearing with the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee where he, or I should say... um, TikTok's going to be under the gun. And he's going to users saying, don't let them do this. Emphasizing the large scale of TikTok users, small, medium-sized businesses, and its own employees based in the U.S. that rely on the company. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. is pushing for the, the parent company of TikTok, ByteDance, to sell its stake or face a ban. Um, I'm not sure what level of propaganda was pushed towards the TikTok user. I am not a user of TikTok. I will tell you the minute it does sell uh, out of Chinese hands, I will.
Oh, oh, the cigar and bourbon content, bloop, going right on with the strategies that that we've been putting together for how we're going to do this. The mistakes that I've made and I'm now correcting on on the entirety of of my uh, social side. Oh, my gosh. Fixing everything. Kylan, we're going to have you working in about an hour. It's very impressive stuff. It's Kylan who's running the board today. I have somebody new every week. We don't actually have a producer for this show. We've just got people we randomly pick up off the street. They tend to come back. True story. True story. TikTok needs to be out of Chinese hands. And that's the end of the ballgame. And I would say this to any, any content creator on the platform. Because they're the ones who are going to get hurt if, if TikTok just goes away. And I feel awful for them. I don't want this for them. It's best that the company gets sold. And there are plenty of companies that will buy it. And you'll say to me, oh, sure. Somebody with the inside track is going to get a special deal. Someone's brother-in-law is going to get a special deal to get TikTok. By the way, TikTok has more than 150 million monthly active users. Sometimes you'll see MAU. That's monthly active user. Um, that's huge. And TikTok, how do I explain how much TikTok leads the way? So let me let me go back to, to, to Kylan. I did not tell Kylan I was going to talk to her about this. But uh, Kylan is, is radio and Kylan is an actress and Kylan does a whole, whole bunch of things. Generationally, you, you are a, you're Gen Z, right? I am. Yeah. yeah. Like like you're you're in your 20s. You're in your near mid 20s. I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not wrong about that, am I? No. Okay, no. we'll leave it there. We're not we don't need exact ages. We don't need blood types or anything else like that. Does anybody in your age group use Facebook at all? Hardly. Only because their parents say they have to. Right. Just to keep up with what they have on Instagram. And that's the ball game, kids. There's an entire generation Multiple generations that think you're crazy for using Facebook. You still think Facebook is new. And yes, the vast majority of things you see from TikTok are the sa- is the same little nonsense dance. and You don't even know why it's a thing. And yet 100 million people are doing it. There are whole worlds of TikTok. There's there are people who are into cars and there's people into music and there's people into this. There's I am sure if you look up bowling TikTok, do you you have TikTok, don't you? Don't you, Kylan? <laughs> yeah. Look up bowling. I wanna know how I wanna know how many videos there are right now of bowling TikTok. Because people don't recognize in how many places it's being utilized and how much money is being made. Guys. You're the schmuck still going to work. I mean, if we're going to be honest with each other, because I don't believe in lying for anything, you still think you should be going to work. You schmuck. People don't go to work. They are the work. They create the content. Other people watch it. Money flows in. Were you able to look up bowling by any chance? I was. Scrolling through the users right now. There's no specific number, but this is quite a few swipes down. Yeah, like there's there's bowling con- there's bowling content on TikTok. All I'm saying is it's out there and people want to see it. It's a, it is it is remarkable. You ask yourself 
Why would anybody want to watch that? That is the wrong question asked by the person with their head in the sand or the person who refuses to say, I'm going to go do that. I am not saying that societally it's the best thing for us. I am not saying that you need to put down said phone and go breathe fresh air. I'm saying there's an audience. When you ask why would anyone thank you, at least I don't have to compete against you. Anytime you say to me, why would anybody watch that? I just move you a little bit over to the side. That's how much you don't matter. Now that is offensive to some people, what I just said. That is downright rude. But it is the facts, and that's what I'm going to stick with. People will watch other people bowl. It's like video gaming. Uh, My kids were young when I came around to this. They watch other people game. Kids are playing a game. They do video of it, and other kids watch those kids play a game. And we say, what in the hell is that? And they say, what's the difference between this and watching a football game on TV? And you are left dumbfounded. Or you go, well, come on, come on. And then you walk away. But the truth is, you don't know. It was that moment where I said to my kids, you win. Start gaming. Start gaming. Get good. Get a scholarship. Do this professionally. Whatever. Create video games. Go to it. Become a content creator. Knock yourself out. What am I supposed to do? Tell you to go to college? <laughs> Why would I do such a thing? College is for some people. College is not everybody. And you might learn some things in college and you can apply to this. You can do this anytime. You can be creating the content at 2 a.m. Uh, in, in, in your basement in your underwear. Go ahead. I mean, don't take video of yourself in your underwear. I mean, that's just don't. All right, that's what OnlyFans is. I'm telling you not to do it. I am telling you that people are making real money on TikTok. And TikTok is not safe. Because China cannot be trusted. And so be very, very attuned to what gets said in front of this U.S. House committee. Because one of the things you will learn is that these members of Congress don't actually understand the depths to which the content creation permeates. They don't understand the algorithm and how different it is from the other things out there where they, whether it's YouTube doing the shorts or it's Instagram doing the reels, are desperately trying to catch up and they're still not there. TikTok just dominated with how it viewed the user interface and really the user interaction. Give the user what they want. Don't give the user what we think they want. It's a very, it, is, it is different in that way. But in the end, as much as I want these people who have built these industries and businesses to thrive, national security comes first. National security comes first, and that means it has to go, whether China likes it or not. I don't know if Congress is ready for that moment, but they better get there, and that right soon. I'm Tony Katz. So the cast of Ted Lasso ends up at the White House. 
And while they're there, it's absolute bedlam because of a reporter you might not know about named Simon Ateba. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Simon Ateba has been uh, part of the White House briefing for a while. He's with a group called Today's News Africa. And he does not like the fact that he doesn't get called on. Because the same people get called on in the White House day after day after day. He doesn't get called on and he is fierce. Now, he's fierce to the point where he upsets other members of the briefing because he's interrupting them. And it gets nuts. But he's trying to make the point that why don't others of us get a chance to speak? And it got so you've got the cast, right? You got Jason Sudeikis, you got uh, uh, Hannah Whittingham, uh, you, you've you've got uh, uh, Roy Kent, that uh, Brett Goldstein, I think, is the name of the actor. And oh my! Yeah, right. You're right. You're here for me. Right for me. No, 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 no. That's not. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. You've been discriminating against me and discriminating against some people in the briefing room. And I'm saying that this is the U.S., this is not China, this is not Russia. This is China, this is not Russia, and other members are saying, let her start. Now, some of those people are Brian Karam. Brian Karam used to write for Playboy. You want to talk about a nasty dude towards President Trump. Nasty. So you've got the cast standing behind her. She's trying to do this thing. I mean, even I felt bad. For Corinne Jean-Pierre at this moment. This is not Russia. Okay. What you are doing, you are making a monthly of the first amendment. It's been seven months. You've not called on me. You've not know my messages. I'm saying that that's not right. That's not right. On times, welcome, guys. Welcome. Welcome to the press briefing room. Okay. Now, his argument is actually sound. Who cares if the cast of the television show Ted Lasso is there? He wants to be able to ask questions. Why is he being excluded? When is, when is the right moment to stand up? So it's pretty interesting when you take a look at it from that point of view. But I felt, I, I mean, what, what is the cast supposed to do? Are they supposed to just walk off? They're supposed to just be like, "Nat, Nat can't be here." They were uh, the show. Mental illness is a, or you know, you know, depression, things like that, is part of the show in a lot of ways. So I guess they're there to talk uh, about that. But it was something else. It was something else to watch. Meanwhile, let's go back to uh, the banking issues that we've been seeing, and what comes next. The Dow is is up 191. The NASDAQ is up 103. You've got house prices going up over 14% in February. But the median price has just dropped for the first time in over a decade. That according to CNBC. I sat down and spoke with Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. We're more than a week removed from all this that happened with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank. Let's take a step back. What happened? What was the response? And is this response in any way valuable? Or have we made an unbelievable mistake? Keep it right here. This is Tony Katz today. I think that lifting the FDIC insurance cap 
is a good move. Now the question is, where's the right number on lifting yeah. it? But recognize that we have to do this because these banks are under-regulated. And if we lift the cap, we are requiring or relying even more heavily on the regulators to do their job. I try not to listen to Senator Elizabeth Warren, but are we now going to see an increase happening in the FDIC? Why would it even matter if we've already stated that we're going to privatize gains and socialize the losses? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. Let me bring in Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis, who we've been talking to about these issues. We've been engaged in these conversations. And the last we spoke, you were breaking down, sir, the insanity of what we were seeing from Silicon Valley Bank, uh, from Signature Bank in New York, which is a story that doesn't get enough play at all, sir. Then, of course, the conversation regarding regarding Silvergate and how they were involved in the crypto world. But let's take the step back. If you were explaining this to somebody from another planet, trying to explain to them what happened here and what took place here, how do you explain what has happened with Silicon Valley Bank and with the banking sector as a whole? You know, Tony, I think that's where we have to start because it's important that people understand the problem before we get into the nuts and bolts of what's happening. The problem started with banks who have too much interest rate risk and too much credit risk. Tony, those are the two kinds of risk that banks have, interest rate risk and credit risks. And they weren't hedging their risk and they were making bad loans, bad investments. That's where it all started. Elizabeth Warren is wrong. They weren't underregulated. They were misregulated. The current regulators missed the ball. They dropped the ball. They totally didn't understand what was going on. That's where the problem starts. And we have to remember interest rate risk and credit risk. But in this case, Tony, we also have to remember that President Biden, who created inflation along with the Fed, lit the fire. They lit the match that started the big fire. And this is what we can't forget about, Tony, is that's where it all began and that the Fed has to raise interest rates to fight inflation, they have no choice at this point, and that is going to harm banks who are taking too much interest rate risk, Tony. Now, that's where I want to push back. I want to push back on this idea that somehow the raising of interest rates is going to harm banks because the raising of interest rates comes as the way to be the hedge against inflation. You described it here. We've discussed it many times. Inflation is too much cash and not enough stuff. And you raise interest rates to therefore reduce the amount of cash supply in the system to bring that down and to bring things into balance. Now, it's kind of hard to do when you don't when you have this supply chain issues and you don't have enough stuff uh, coming in, but you're now making an argument or, or maybe you're engaged in the argument they're making. Maybe it's not your specific argument that you can't raise interest rates because the banks are in a too much of a precarious position. Is that the case? The banks are in too precarious of a position and you can't raise rates anymore. So we all deal with inflation because some bank doesn't know how to regulate itself. So Tony, maybe I didn't explain myself well. I think the Fed has to raise interest rates to fight inflation. But what I said is it's going to harm the banks that are mismanaged. It's not going to harm the good banks. It's not going to harm the, the banks that have managed their risk properly, that have good credit risk. Those banks won't be harmed. And that's perfectly fine, Tony. In fact, they'll benefit from higher interest rates because they'll be able to charge a higher rate on the loans they make. What I meant to say, and again, I apologize if I wasn't clear, is it's going to hurt the banks that have been mismanaged. And that's perfectly fine. If you're a mismanaged bank, if you've been rolling the dice and gambling, 
you should be gone. You shouldn't be around. Someone should gobble you up and we should only have good, solid banks remaining. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Okay, we're talking about well-managed and mismanaged banks here. That's what we're referring to. Talk to me about this mismanagement. As we know the story from Silicon Valley Bank, they were doing what could be seen as the proper thing. They were buying what is the safest buy in America, which is a, a bond, because they wanted to make sure they had the money if their depositors come calling. But there was also a conversation that they were putting out crazy dollars as opposed to what they were taking in. And isn't that something that the regulators at Silicon Valley Bank, the people at Silicon Valley Bank, the CFO at Silicon Valley Bank, the head of risk management at Silicon Valley Bank should have noticed before the state of California and the federal regulators did. And did they notice it too late? Well, well Tony, let me correct one thing that, that you just said. They were making loans and investing depositor dollars and investor dollars in high-risk things, not safe bonds. They had a portion in that. There, It's true. Every bank has a portion of their investments in safe securities. But the problem they were having is they had a significant number of investments, go back to credit risk, in venture capital and crypto companies. That's where they went awry, along with not managing their interest rate risk. Now, Tony, there's a history behind this. So if I could spend a moment and explain to people that what happened at Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate and what's happening at other banks is that they are traditionally investment banks. There's investment banks, Tony, and there's traditional banks. They are different. And President Clinton in 1999 signed a law that repealed Glass-Steagall. This was the act that said, we will not combine the two. Traditional safe banks can't be doing investment banking because investment banking is risky. He signed a law that prevented that. And, and Tony, that's where all this problem started. It started then, and then the, this gray area started mingling. And so what you have with Silicon Valley Bank is a tr investment bank mentality. In fact, Tony, one of their top executives was a former CFO at Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers, the biggest bank yeah. failure that we had at that time in history, went out of business because they were gambling on the kind of loans and investments they made. And he was the guy in charge at Silicon Valley Bank. It's Go back. Go back, if you would, to this Glass-Steagall conversation, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, D-R-M-A-T-T-W-I-L-L, -L, Dr. Matt Will, on, on, on Twitter, because we hear about Glass-Steagall, and then we hear about Dodd-Frank, and these are the things that led us down this road. Break down Glass-Steagall for us, and exactly the issue that that created in the Silicon Valley Bank story. Tony, there, there used to be a law in this country that said, if you're an investment bank, you're higher risk, you don't get FDI insurance, but you can do things that are riskier. If you're a traditional bank, you can get FDIC insurance. You can't do certain things that are investment-oriented derivatives, venture capital lending, leveraged buyouts. You have to be a very safe because you're holding the people's money. The people on Main Street are trusting you. In 1999, President Clinton signed a law to repeal Glass-Steagall that allowed these two banks to come together. So now traditional banks could start being risky and risky banks could start being more traditional and they got insurance. And that's what we're seeing here. The traditional bank model has been corrupted by this investment bank mentality. And if we, I'm assuming we're going to talk about what's happened in Switzerland and we see it happening there exactly the same way that it happened here. 
Now, when we talk about what happened in Switzerland, I think I've got this right. This is nuts. Credit Suisse, which is more on the institutional side of, of lending, started to have the same problems, the same capital problems that you saw from Silicon Valley Bank. The, the Saudi Arabian Bank, the National Bank of Saudi Arabia, which is the Saudi royal family, they have 9.9% of the bank. And they said, sorry, we can't help you. We can't have more than 10% as per the regulators. So we, you're, you're, you know what, out of luck with us, we can't give you any cash. Enter the Swiss National Bank, which pours, I believe it was 54 billion US dollars into the bank. And then a week later, UBS, a competitor to Credit Suisse, is allowed to buy the entire company. UBS is allowed to buy Credit Suisse for $3.4 billion. If I thought Credit Suisse was available for $3.4 billion, Dr. Will, you and I could have put together a team and, and, and bought this thing. That is That seems to be like no money at all. So people are very upset about this, saying, wait a second, what kind of boondoggle is going on here? What kind of boondoggle is going on here and how does it relate to the other things? Well, it's, it's, it's almost exactly like the Silicon Valley bank situation because UBS, let's go back to the analogy I just gave you. UBS is a traditional bank. They are very solid. They have no interest rate risk. They have almost no credit risk. They're a very boring bank, Tony. And if you put your money in UBS, it's safe. Credit Suisse, on the other hand, was more of an investment bank. They were rolling the dice. They were competing directly with Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and Chase for investment banking deals. These are high-risk deals, Tony, venture capital type stuff, just like SVB was doing. They were competing with those companies, and they were losing. Credit Suisse didn't have a natural depositor base like you and I. They didn't have the average person putting money in their bank. Their depositors were the Saudi Arabian government, the Kuwaiti government these sovereign wealth funds that had billions of dollars in there. And Tony, when they pulled their money out, there was no money left to replace what they had removed. And that's where the problem was. Now, Tony, I don't know that you and I could have bought the bank because the Swiss government broke every Swiss law when they handed it over to UBS. And we can get into this uh, addition, what's called AT1 tier capital and subordinate loans, but they totally violated the rules. And all the other people in Europe are very upset about it. And they've been saying, we will not let that happen in our countries. We will have to get to that uh, another day, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Let's bring it back here. and Let's go back to that commentary from Senator Elizabeth Warren and the idea of increasing the caps on FDIC. Um, it seems that if Joe Biden, the president, already says that we'll do more uh, to ensure that depositors have their money safe, if Janet Yellen, the uh, Treasury Secretary, is saying we will do more to ensure the banking system is safe, what does it matter what FDIC does, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation? It seems to me that our leadership has stated we're going to privatize gains and we are going to socialize losses is that or is that not what they have said with this silicon valley bank what i'll refer to as bailout tony it is factually correct what you just said but it's even worse because think of the student loan situation let me use that as an analogy in that situation it's the the person who didn't go to college who's working a nine-to-five job a, a you know electrician who's bailing out you know the the doctor who has all these loans piled up from medical school that's what's going to happen here the person has under $250,000 is going to pay increased insurance penalties. Tony, that's a tax. I don't care what the president says. It's a tax. So you and I, 
those people that have under 250,000 in the bank, they're going to pay an extra fee to bail out the Mark Cubans of the world, the high rolling tech investors in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco, in Boston. These people that are the Bill Ackman, one of the biggest hedge fund, richest guys in the country says, hey, increase the limit. Why, Tony? Because he's got money in these banks. Mark Cuban has money in these banks. These very rich people want to get bailed out. And that's what she's talking about. You and I, the average person will be paying to bail out the billionaires, Tony. That is wrong. And I can't believe she's saying it. And they're trying to hide it under the guise of populism. Dr. Matt Will has much more to say on this issue. And we got into a conversation about really, are we okay with the banking system? Do we think that everything is fine and good? Should Americans feel okay with everything that that's going on because i felt one way a week ago and i'm not so sure how i feel right now i have not run to the bank guys i i haven't gotten my money out of the bank i haven't done that i feel confident in the bank that i am in uh, i should say uh plural on that one uh but uh what we're seeing what we're seeing seems odd and peculiar different than last week and so we got into this should you feel safe about where your money is. I will share part two of this conversation with Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, in a little bit. Keep it right here. This is Tony Katz Today. So there's an activist out of San Francisco who is warning America that this is nuts. I didn't know you need to be an activist to do such a thing but what they're describing as nuts is not just the drug problem but who is a part of the drug problem tony katz tony katz today it's good to be with you find everything tonycats.locals.com tonycats.locals.com and we're gonna have part two of my conversation with dr matt will economist university of indianapolis we will have that uh, a little bit later in in the show so stick around for that this guy's name is tom wolf we're not talking about the author Pacific Alliance for Prevention and Recovery. Okay, he was an addict. Now he's an activist. He helps people try and get off drugs. That's what it seems uh, to me. The conversation that he's having, and he's having it on, he was had it on Fox and Friends first, which is that early morning show. I've done it a couple times, uh, super early in the morning, that the issue here is more than just drugs. The issue here is who is bringing the drugs and enforcing their perpetuation. Unfortunately for San Francisco, we've become the epicenter of the overdose crisis in the United States. We have the highest overdose death rate per capita of any country in the United States right now. And if we don't step in and intervene, and what I mean by intervene, he says, is we need to actually come in and take these organized drug dealers down because they are cartel-fueled organized drug dealers that are operating in our streets. Now, I will say to you that without data, but anecdotally, this is absolutely accurate, that the cartels have realized that there is extra profit in ensuring that their product is the only product, that their product gets used with reckless abandon, and why should law enforcement or anybody else get in the way? So you take the moral decay, you take the the rot that you're seeing, and you utilize that to amplify your need by which you know then amplifies the rot. And when you have that coupled 
with district attorneys and prosecutors who will not prosecute and police officers who hand, whose hands are, are, are tied, well, what you get is more disaster. What you get is more complete and total disaster, which is exactly what we have. What we have is complete and total disaster in these cities. This is an extremely, extremely brave conversation because this is a guy you go after because he hurts business. But it is what's happening, isn't it? If I were to ask my beloved Indianapolis, if I were to reach out to people in Chicago or Minneapolis or Seattle or New York or Miami or name your city, how many of them will quietly say, yeah, this is very real. And there's no way to fight these people unless we fight. I mean, you're literally going to have to do it on the streets. But how do you fight these people when the next batch just comes up from the southern border, which is totally exposed? How the border affects you, this is how. You needed to explain it to somebody? Here it is. They didn't understand it before? There you go. That's how the border affects you. Because any place a cartel, any place where a drug operation sees a chance for a couple of bucks, they're going to exploit it. And what does it matter if you get removed in the process? Killed, pushed aside, you leave. It doesn't matter as long as the drugs keep moving. This is what we're fighting. This is how big the issue is. Really an amazing story. And they really did put their life on the line by saying it on TV. This is Tony Katz today. Today.